my, for Mother's Day, I bought my wife a vacuum. I know. I know what you're thinking. You're saying that was a terrible decision and that's probably why you're sleeping on the couch. No, there are other reasons for why I'm sleeping on the couch. My wife wanted a robotic vacuum. Big fan of it. So uh, I took the children out shopping because they don't yet have credit cards um, but apparently know how to make online purchases on a house. <laughs> I learned that out the other week. Um, so we got, we got mum a robotic vacuum and I love it. 10 a.m. each day it kicks into gear and goes off and vacuums the house. A very low profile thing, uh, quite unassuming. The dog really doesn't like it, um, <laughs> which I adore because occasionally it'll start vacuuming around the dog. Um, and yeah, you can just tell that they're, they're not friends yet. Uh, the thing is, it's, it's a smart vacuum and so it it sends me updates just to let me know how it's doing, which I love. You know, I love a vacuum that communicates. And so when its sensors are dusty, it lets me know and I clean off its sensors and uh, occasionally it'll let me know that it's, it's become trapped. And so I got an alert the other day that said, RoboVac is trapped, caught on a ledge or some other precipice send help immediately. And I thought to myself, well, this vacuum's been quite theatrical because I've just completed a renovation and I know that I don't live cliffside. So I'm a little bit concerned about what precipice it finds itself on. And so I went to investigate and sure enough, RoboVac had been caught on a 15 centimetre step. And it didn't know what to do. And its back wheels were hanging off and you could see it was spinning. And it had sent me an alert to say that it was trapped and didn't know a way out. But as a, as a person who's slightly taller than four inches, I was able to tell from my perspective that it wasn't trapped, but it was merely hung up on a step. And so I rescued RoboVac and it went about its duties. I thought to myself, and we were talking about this last week, weren't we? Andrew was like, I know this. We were talking about this last week. Is that, you know, sometimes with a little bit of perspective, you realise that you're not trapped on a cliff, that you're just right next to a step. And you need some help. And uh, I felt led this week because I, I wanted to kind of wrap up this this series on church and what a church should be before Pentecost Sunday because Daz is going to give a different message and then we're going to launch back into church after with a new series. But I was really compelled to read The Shrewd Manager and I, I don't know if you know the parable of The Shrewd Ma Manager but it, it causes a lot of controversy and a lot of people don't really like working through it because it's, it's a challenging parable. And I, I want to read it to you. It says, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account for your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to him, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job and I'm not strong enough to dig. 
and I am too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that I, uh, when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down, and quickly make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master uh, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is all gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. So, if you're not being trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you your own property? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Is God endorsing the deceitful manager? The rich man celebrates the deceitful manager at one point in this passage. But that's not the point. The point is God isn't actually endorsing deceit, but rather celebrating the shrewdness of the manager. What is praiseworthy about what the manager does? He essentially spends most of this parable ripping off the master and not managing his possessions well. I mean, that's the reason he's initially in trouble, is that he has not been a great manager and so finds himself out of the job. Not only that, he's so incompetent, he cannot dig a hole. I have a four-year-old at one stage who could dig a hole. This manager does not have the capacity to do that. Not only that, he's so prideful, he is ashamed to beg. And so what he inevitably does is cause more deceit by ripping off the owner. The thing is, is that it's his shrewdness that is the point of this parable. Is that unlike the sons of light who may retreat into pious passivity in the face of opposition, the shrewd manager forms a plan based on his limited resources and acts on it. Calls in the first debtor. How much do you owe? 800. Make it 400. Calls in the second. What do you owe? Cut it. Cut it down. Make it less. When all hope seems lost, he does what he can with the very little that he has to ensure that he has a future when the possibility is bleak. And so the question is, 
with the little that we have, what can we do? The encouragement, the celebration of this parable is to highlight the point that where we lack resources, it does not mean that we lack the ability to be shrewd, to be astute, to be wise. Wisdom is not predicated on resources. And so this parable is directed towards the disciples. There's only 12 of them. They're going to change the world with 12 people, untrained, ordinary humans who could take every opportunity to complain about the lack of resources they have. And so the reminder is shrewdness is not predicated on resources. And so the question becomes, how do we use our wits and our wealth in a way to bring glory to God? So that we might be received into the eternal tabernacle of God rather than these transitory tents that we live in in a way that glorifies God. Because we're working towards an eternity, not towards a present. And so this is what the master praises him for, his ingenuity. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. How do we prudently prepare for eternity. The question becomes, how do we use wealth? I mean, I think every single person in this, in this room has probably had one of those big rock conversations about money, haven't we? You, you, uh, uh, there's a, an American financial guru called Dave Ramsey. Has anyone heard of David Ramsey? And he says you go through life in multiple stages. You go poor, rich, poor, rich, poor. That's how you go through life, right? So when you're, my kid is poor. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any income. He's completely poor, right? But then once you graduate from school and you get your first job, then you become rich. The problem is, is that when you become rich, you have no clue that you're rich, okay? Because you literally have no debt. You're probably still living at home with your parents and you have this abundant source of income coming in. Um, but you don't realize that, right? Until you have a couple of kids and you realize they cost $750,000 each these days. And um, now you're poor again, right? But then those kids grow up and find themselves in a rich phase and they become le much less of a burden on you. And so you become rich again just for a little short season of life until um, you go to retirement, in which case you find yourself poor again. So poor, rich, poor, rich, poor. The thing is, is that for all of us in the room, uh, we actually are really high up on the global wealth index. 
Um, can I, uh, just really simple question, put you in the top 10% of richest people in the world. Um, who has a running faucet in the house? Alex, are you telling me you don't have a running faucet of water in the house? You don't have a tap in your house. You do have a tap in your house. Anyone have a flashing toilet in the community? So I'm just saying, in the suburb you live in, there's a flushing toilet that you have access to. One or two? You neighbours have one. <laughs> Ives has gone downhill since last time I was there. <laughs> I'm guessing you've got a flushing toilet in your house. Welcome to the top 10% of richest people on earth. We're wealthy. How do we be prudently preparing for eternity? The question then becomes, we must choose to serve one master because we can't serve two. We're either going to serve God or we're going to serve money. Shrewdness, by definition, is having sharp powers of judgment and being astute. Size does not negate shrewdness. Wealth does not negate shrewdness. And so we need to find a way to reframe our perspective so we can leverage what little resources we may think we have to be wise, to be shrewd, to be proactively using the gifts, the talents and the resources that we have to build into the kingdom of God. And I think Johan is right. We're coming through a tumultuous season. And we could spend a lot of time talking about all the problems of that tumultuous season, but I don't want to say that that's the thing that we should do because it doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. And every time I sit with it in prayer, it doesn't feel right. Is that we have this incredible opportunity to bless a community with the goodness and knowledge of Christ. And I'm going to keep suggesting let's figure out new and different ways to do this. My encouragement is let's give it a shot. We have these conversations. So, you know, I have one with Anne. We should do a prayer and praise night. Okay, well, what does that look like? And we just keep talking about it. The truth is we should do it and see what happens. There was an argument in the office the other day. We've got, to get to, we've got to get to 40 people for the church camp, okay? There's 32 in the room right now, so we're eight short. That's assuming every single human's coming, and I know that the Russells are going to a special fitness celebration, so that rules out at least six in the room. So we could have this debate about how do we get to 40, or we could just do it, Okay? And we could be okay if it doesn't work and we have to pay a little bit extra, but in the end we just do a church camp with 30 people and pay for 40 and that's okay. It's not ideal, but I feel like what, what the season is we're in is we've got to figure out astute and shrewd ways to bring glory to God using the resources that we have. And sometimes that feels a little bit like throwing mud against a wall and seeing what sticks. Rather than relentlessly wide-handing decisions 
so that they never happen. My encouragement is you are all in a place where you have the ability to prudently prepare for eternity and be astute with the resources that you have at home or in this place. And size doesn't stop that from happening. And resources don't stop that from happening. And wealth doesn't stop that from happening. But we can't focus on all the little problems and not see all the abundant blessings that we are surrounded by. Because those are the things that are going to put us into a place where we can be shrewd like this person. Our goal is not to amass possessions or wealth, but rather to glorify God. Um, who? <laughs> stupid question, because I know the answer. Um, who here has been on a mission trip? Right? We've all been on a mission trip. And we... we um, we go into these communities in developing nations that are so different from what we're used to. And we are welcomed into loving families, homes. Where, I mean, I was blown away on my first mission trip by the abundant presence of joy. Like... It, this, I grew up on the North Shore. I grew up in St. Ives back in the day when everyone had a toilet. Um, uh, and I remember the first time going on a mission trip and the abrasiveness of walking in, you know, like you, you kind of I got into this hut and it was like one of those, you know, like a mud hut with a really well-swept um, dirt floor and there was uh, fire on one side that you do cooking in. And there was like not a, not a full room divider, but like a quarter room divider. And around behind that was kind of the sleeping zone for the five people that lived in it. And it, it probably was maybe the size of this carpeted section over here, slightly smaller. But you got in there and it was this incredible joy in there. And I, I was like... We, where is this joy coming from? And, and, and it was like house after house and a community after community of these people being welcoming and joyous and, and wonderful. And it, it wasn't until like my seventh or eighth um, mission trip, I went with um, uh, Tim Hanna from Compassion. And he called me out on it because I was like, I was just like, I don't understand how they'd be so joyous. Like I was really conflicted by it. Like, and I, you know, I felt like God was trying to teach me something, but I was too stupid to hear whatever he was trying to teach me. And Tim says, is, is fine. I'm trying to get the words right. He said, is finances, fin financial provision, a marker for good parenting. So for you to be a good parent, is financial provision an essential quality? The answer is no. Unequivocally, no. Because all these parents were awesome parents. Amazing parents, and there was a sense of joy and love and wonder in all these different households. But all I got hung up on was the mud hut. 
But they don't see a mud hut, do they? They saw a home with love. And this is the thing, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you get those little plaques that you stick on in the home, and you know, this is, a, this is not a house, this is a home because it has love. And you read that and you think, great, great, great use of six bucks, you know, now I've made it. But the, the, the truth wasn't revealed to me until I got on these mission trips and I'm like this is a mud hut no it's a home because of the presence of love and an indicator of successful parenting isn't financial provision and he just like you know we're in the Philippines and he is just tearing shreds off on me and I'm like Tim Hanna is meant to be nice this is nice Tim not Tim Costello mean Tim easy (laughs) Tim's also very nice um but I was really conflicted. And I was re- like, it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, okay, that's a learning thing is that I've always assumed wrongfully that financial provision is a key indicator of good parenting. And it is not because 90% of the population can't do that effectively. And then it brought home. And this is often what happens on the backside of a mission trip. The abundance of blessing that you walk into, right? Is you almost, you kind of, you're taken out into a mission trip where everything feels compromised. And a lot of your, a huge amount of your blessing is kind of stripped back. What's important? What's important? What's important? Like that's the question that keeps coming back up. And and then you walk back into your home, and it's this is like this tsunami of blessing, and you you don't know how to compute. Does this make sense? Does everyone kind of know what I'm feeling? You know, like we've had this feeling, right? You walk back in your home, and you're like, oh gosh, just dripping with blessing, aren't I? Gosh, I've been a sad sack about all that. David, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, he does. You just, you spend the next two weeks, three weeks trying to figure it all out. You know, you're scratching your head and sipping a latte, maybe a turmeric one going, what is, what am I, what is all of this for? And how do I grapple those people and that joy and that, uh, that, that resourcefulness in the face of what seems to be poverty, but there's this incredible joy, and yet I walk back into stuff and I'm surrounded by this dripping blessing and I feel hollow. And I think as I was working through this passage, the thing that I, I keep on coming back to is that we have such an obsession with that financial component that we forget the incredible arsenal of tools that God has gifted us that exist outside of the realm of wealth. And what happens when we go on these mission trips is that that huge wealth conversation is kind of removed not present here it's not a topic we can talk about 
In fact, what we've done is built a church and we're just praying for a roof to be put on it. How did you build a church? We dug a hole. The guy in this passage could not even dig a hole. And we started building a church and we're praying for the tent for the roof. We got no way of doing it, so we're just going to trust in God to do it. And so I just start to feel more and more at home with that idea from Malachi. Who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? God does. If God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, then he can figure out a way. And the question then becomes, how do I become resourceful, become shrewd, become of astute judgment based with the incredible, abundant arsenal of blessings that are already kept in my house to glorify God. Because I don't want us to fall into a season where we're just trying to amass. But the question I want to be asking is how do we glorify? How do we celebrate? How do we empower? How do we transform? How do we take personally and corporately all the gifts that we have amassed in this room to sow in to an eternal tabernacle and not a transitory tent? And here's the worst part of this sermon. I don't have an answer. So I'm just willing to try anything all the time. And so let's make the next season one where we just try it and see if it works. And if we doesn't, Let's try something else and see if that works and continually ask the question, if it didn't work, what were the things that were successful about the thing that didn't work? So maybe we could apply it to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And then as we start doing all of these things, like I said a couple of weeks ago about riding a bike, right? It's counterintuitive and you have to trust the process is that we keep on trying And we graze our shins sometimes and we get back on it. And as we start to do these things, we become more and more and more astute. And we start to make better and better and better and better judgments because the one thing that we keep on coming back to is we're not trying to amass wealth but glorify God. And so let's give it a shot. Because the shrewd manager was deceitful, incompetent and could not even dig a hole but he figured out a way to create a future for himself we are 
without anger, malice, bitterness. This is the Colossians passage from, from the communion talk today. But we are clothed in righteousness. We have put, put off our old self and we have put on a new eternal self. And so shouldn't we therefore, with the wisdom of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, have the ability to be more shrewd than anyone else in the city? So let's figure out a way to get there. Let's give it a shot. Let's pray. Wow, Lord. (laughs) Uh, That we might be shrewd. That we might be astute. That we might be of discerning judgment. That what we do, Lord, might glorify you. And might prudently be preparing for the eternal tabernacle. Not the tents that we reside in here. Lord, where our heart needs convicting, convict us and give us the wisdom to use what we have to bring glory to you. Lord, give us the boldness to give it a shot. Give us a willingness to evaluate to celebrate and to continue glorifying you, knowing that we are just using the tools that you have given us in a way to do that. Holy Spirit, lead us. Holy Spirit, guide us. Lord, that you might cast out any fear or anxiety and replace it with a blessed assuredness that we know that you are our king, that you are our father, and that we are your beloved children. Amen.